Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Breakpoint Podcast. And in a little bit of a new format with me, Frankie, and my co-host, Marcus. So, as you guys can tell, for the first time, we're going to be doing a little bit of a video component to the Breakpoint Podcast, which uh, should be new for you guys, and you could finally see what we look like, which is probably a new phenomenon, and you've probably now seen the... Um, the physical appearance discrepancy that goes on in this podcast. Some would say that it's carried by one person. Not going to say who, but I think the answer is pretty self-revealing. Oh, Frank, I'm so happy to be on video finally. Got uh, all of the folks who have not stalked our Instagram are now going to be able to see us and uh, our idiot faces and what we exactly talk about on this pod. So this is good stuff. It is. It is. Uh, And now you can see... Uh, that I am normally recording in my cold and dark basement, which I know is a riveting and professional background for all of you to uh, to to uh, be a part of. So what brings us here today, Marcus, is the release of the much anticipated, some would say a little bit of a ripoff uh, breakpoint documentary. Uh, which has a shockingly similar logo to another podcast, which shall not be named. And uh, it finally dropped this weekend, Marcus. Part one dropped. Part two will be out in June of 23. But the first five episodes did drop this weekend. For those of you who are not familiar, this is the show that we have been talking about for quite a while now. And it is going to be in the same format as the F1 series that is currently on Netflix called Drive to Survive, which has massively popularized that sport in the United States, including with people like myself who have no history of F1 at all. And now I even follow it because of the show. So very high hopes and expectations were put on to uh, the Breakpoint documentary, whatever you want to call it. Um, And it finally came out. Uh, There was a big red carpet ceremony in Australia, pre the Australian Open. Obviously, that timing was not by accident. They certainly wanted to release this right before the first Grand Slam of the 2023 season. And similar to the Drive to Survive format, this is going to be chronicling last year's action. So in the same way that Drive to Survive usually drops last season's information at the start of the new season live of F1 break point uh, is going to be dropping the first half during the start of the 2023 season. That's chronicling the first half of the 2022 season. So that format, that is why that exists. That is like a pretty common thing that is happening in, in all of these sports documentary shows. Um, So that is, that is why that is working. So Marcus, why don't you, we're going to talk about the first two episodes Uh, in this podcast. Originally, we were going to do an episode for each, but I think it just kind of makes sense more for us to, you know, squeeze two of these in because they're not too uh, dense. So, Marcus, why don't you talk about what you thought of episode one, which is called The Maverick, which was largely about Nick Kyrgios. That episode, Frank, was clearly out of the five, at least that 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 we watched. You know, I binged them all in one night. That was the one that was the most interesting, the most anticipated, um, especially because it is Nick Kyrgios. He is the bad boy of tennis. He is the most polarizing figure. Uh, in a way, he also puts tennis on the map for the non-average viewer because of the antics that he brings, not only to the game on the court, but also off the court. Um, he... 
and and of course he's Australian, so you know him being at the Australian Open, he's starting to finally take his game a little bit more seriously. Uh, he's an Australian Open favorite now. Unfortunately, we know that he, as of last night, pulled out with a torn meniscus. Um, that is that is very unfortunate for Nick, and I wish him a speedy recovery. The episode itself um, is definitely the most interesting because it goes into the how come Nick acts like this. And I think that was really important, not only just for um, non-tennis people to kind of watch, to kind of figure out, hey, why is this guy so crazy? Like what's going on with tennis? But also I think it was important. That was the most important one for like the hardcore tennis fans like yourself and I, Frank, and our listeners in that now we kind of got the backstory, right? Like from his upbringing, dealing with the racism, his dad taking tennis away from him, um, we had no idea the effect that it had when he won that quarterfinal or won that round of 16, whatever it was, match against Nadal in Wimbledon, um, the mental effect that it had on him and kind of just spiraled out for the next few years. And now he's starting to finally find a place where he's kind of happy and realize, you know, he's not the type of guy to play, you know, uh, you know, like a 30, a 30 tournament schedule. Like that's just not him. He's more like a 10, 15 tournament schedule guy whenever it fits him it really kind of sheds a light on the the toll that it can have uh, being on tour this long and that it's not really for everybody. So that was kind of my biggest takeaway from that. It's really about like, why? Like, what is what is really going on with Nick? Because no one could understand him for years. Yeah, for me, the biggest takeaway that I had from that episode, or one of them, was certainly actually an appreciation for Carlos Alcaraz. I don't know about you, but I think it really made me appreciate what Carlos has been able to do, what Rafa Nadal was able to do all those years ago. Novak, same thing. These guys each had their own moment and did not let the pressure eat them in the same way that it seems from that episode that the pressure did eat Nick Kyrgios. And I think you know, each of those guys has had like some sort of signature match that's been their like breakout, right? Like for Rafa, you could say it was when he beat Carlos Moya or, you know, I would say that it's probably more so when he beat Roger Federer in Miami. Um, Roger beating Pete in the in in at Wimbledon, I mean, is the most obvious one for his career. Carlos Alcaraz, I mean, I, I think, is probably the second round victory over Stefano Tsitsipas uh, would be the his, his sort of big breakout uh, moment. But, you know, listen, I, 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 I understand and I certainly can sympathize with the mental sort of pressure that goes into being a touring professional. Like, I can only imagine what that's like. But at the same time, that's kind of part of the game. I, I mean, this is this is a known part of the game. And as much as I can have sympathy for it. At the same time, this is something that all of these guys do. All of these guys go through, right? I mean, this is just kind of part of being the top. And and I think that this is sort of why there's always been a big criticism with Kyrgios that he's just never meant to be the face of tennis and the face of like the top end of the tour is because mentally he just does not have that sort of gear that like the rest of the people that I've spoken about have. And, you know, I think he's getting there. Truthfully, I, I do think that he's getting a lot better with it. But the difference between somebody finding that gear at 28 now, I think he is, versus somebody having it at 19 is the difference between a 
good player and an all-time great player, right? And Kyrgios, when he was coming up, had the potential to be an all-time great player. And I think it's very clear at this point he's not going to achieve that. And that that's that's sort of my one caveat to what you're saying. I'm not even sure that it's even a caveat because I don't think the expectation is that he is going to be an all-time great because he doesn't even set himself up for that, right? He is kind of of the mindset. But you would argue at do. the time it was. When he beat Nadal in 2014, it was a monumental moment and there was a massive amount of pressure that like this is going to be a multiple Grand Slam winning player. Right. I mean, I, I don't think I, I at least that's what I remember it being. I think, yeah. And, and I think the sentiment has kind of continued to be like you have so like, I mean, they even said it in the in the uh, in the show about how he's one of the most talented people, you know, most talented players that all these people have seen on tour. And these are, you know, professionals who have seen the likes of Federer, Agassi, like all these insanely talented guys. They're not wrong. And and I think that's that's also kind of the problem is that because Nick is so talented, because he can just literally just use his talent to get to like 13 in the world and make a final of Wimbledon, um, that it, it's it's almost like this this whole world is kind of just bearing down on him like, dude, you gotta you gotta work harder, you gotta be a tennis robot, you gotta use this talent to be a number one per, you know, a number one champion. And he just doesn't he he cracks. He simply cracks. And now he's at the point, he cracked for years. And now he's at the point where he's like, okay, he's figuring out how to do it his way that works best for him mentally. Because clearly, as you saw in, you know, the documentary where they kind of go into his, his substance and, and alcohol abuse about how he was just not doing well when he was trying to play so many tournaments out of the year and kind of be like a normal tennis player like you know he was just alone in hotel rooms he would you know go to pubs until four in the morning where his agent would have to go and find him and grab him um no spoilers here obviously but you know hopefully hopefully you've watched at least an episode or two but these are the type of things that he realized he needed to get away from for him personally so i can't really critique that i actually respect that because he needed to put himself in a place where he he was uh healthy and he's starting to take his game more seriously. He doesn't party as much. He, he, you know, he trains better. He eats better. Um, it's just kind of, it's just kind of weird because it, it's almost like, all right, you do want that success, but then the things that you do on court kind of still go against that. Like when you, when you, you know, yell at your box or go crazy or you know what I mean. It's like, yeah, it, we, we get why now, but it's like, all right, can we, can we change that? Maybe I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, Frank. Like in terms of like maybe we could see some ch- a little bit m- even more change in evolution. Yeah, I personally found a lot of red flags with that stuff, to be honest with you. I and it particularly I found red flags on it because and like Mark as you can google this while I talk just to verify what I'm saying is at least somewhat accurate or like that's the most updated information but like I believe his last girlfriend previous to Costine um, had accused him of something. I, I can't, I don't want to say anything without getting the exact specifics. But Do you want me to give you the specifics? Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, the source, New York Times. Yeah, uh, no, article it, it was, it was or, a big article. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually taking the article that was released today on his, uh, on his, on him pulling out of the Australian, but there's a little blurb at the end of this article. Um, in early February, he's due in court to face a charge of common assault stemming from an altercation with an ex-girlfriend, Chiara Passari, in yep. December 2021. Yep. Uh, he has 
declined to completely discuss the matter publicly. Um, he is due in court, obviously, next month. Um, common assault is the least serious assault charge in, in Australia. Um, but uh, their lawyers are actually going to mount a defense case focused on mental illness, citing his history of depression and substance abuse. Yeah, I mean, this is my thing, right? When I hear Custine in that documentary talk about, I th- she, I think, I believe she literally said the fr- the words, he has a short fuse or something like that. It was just a little bit concerning for me, knowing that that accusation is there in the background. That for me is sort of like a bunch of different red flags going off in my head. But, you know, even just sort of going away from that for a second, I, I mean, you see it on the tennis court and like, I you can't help but think he's a brat. I'm sorry when he plays. And like, I love watching him play. I think he is the most talented guy that I've seen before Carlos Alcaraz post, you know, uh, Novak Djokovic, let's say, right. He is the most talented guy in that era that we talk about. That was just dominated by the big three, but he, he is he is a brat like the way that he behaves like you're saying is is just kind of like a brat like he just has these outbursts and these a- this anger and and everything like that and i just don't i don't know it just turns me off like every time i watch it, it it really really turns me off and this is despite being a big fan of the way that he's able to play and the way that he like looks at the game sometimes that is so different and everything like that i think that's great for the sport on the whole but i just don't know if the negatives that he brings to it outweigh necessarily the positives sometimes, but you know, it is what it is with, with Nick. He just kind of, he just kind of is Um, very quickly. You know, another thing that they spoke about were sort of, was sort of his camp, right? So there's Christine Hatzi, who I mentioned is his girlfriend of quote, two and a half months at the time of the Australian open last year, which I thought was an amazing comment at the time and his manager um daniel horsefall and lastly sort of his sidekick quote-unquote uh Thanasi kokonakis who he ends up winning the australian open doubles with you know marcus i just kind of wanted to know what your opinion was of like seeing these people around him and do you think that they are trying to put him on the right path towards being a successful tennis professional and a happy person too i think for the most part yes i think that costine seems like a a nice sweet girl who i think at this point in his life he needs someone who's not related to tennis so that he can kind of just blow off steam and she'll just say oh i understand honey and not really kind of contribute like an opinion or something um i think that's really important for him Kokonakis, I think, uh, is a good influence too. He's never kind of come off as like that Australian brat guy. Um, he's just kind of just been pummeled by injuries throughout the years. I think that I think that he's generally a good guy too, and he kind of he understands Nick, you know. Um, and, and same thing with his with his manager Horsey. There, he also understands Nick. I, I guess the, I wonder if they work if they could work a little bit harder with him on some of the on-court behavior stuff because just like you mentioned before about how like he, he still comes off as a very bad influence I have no problem with Nick like bringing non-traditional tennis things to tennis you know like wearing like backwards caps or uh, you know wearing Jordans on the court like you know like cool stuff but like it's when you know you do something really messed up 
like you're yelling at a ball boy, you smashing rackets and being a bad influence and cursing at people. And then you try to act like a victim. You know what I mean? Like that, that's what, that's like my main I, issue. So I think I'm wondering, you just hit the nail on the head. I think that's the nail on the head. Yeah. It's, it's the victimization of himself that kind of gets to me. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, just own up to it. Like you messed up. You know what I mean? It's fine. If you do, we all mess up. No one's perfect. Um, so I, I think in general, his team definitely is, is doing well for him. He's kind of found people who he's comfortable with, who he doesn't feel, you know, he, he talks about loneliness a, a lot too. You know, he's uh, he used to feel really lonely out there. So he just hired uh, that guy Horsey to be his full-time manager. So I think that he's got a good support team around him. Um, if he's really serious about a grand slam, I think maybe a, a coach could probably help him. Although he did make the final fibbled in without one. So, and apparently he's a tennis genius from what I've read in an ESPN article about him that like other players go to him to ask him about coaching advice. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. The guy's a tennis savant, um, but he, he definitely could use just a little bit more structure. And I really, you don't want to give someone like that too much structure because otherwise they just, they lose it just like he's done previously. But you know, if he really wants to win a Grand Slam, he's just got to still change a couple things. I Yeah, it's funny. I think that he actually would kind of benefit from, uh, like, the arrangement that Roger has with Sverin Luthi, whatever it is. I think that's, I believe that's his name. Um, that is correct. Yeah. I think, like, if the Nasi Kokonakis could just retire from playing and become Nick's full-time, like, hitting partner... That would be like what Nick needs. He just needs someone to hit and play tennis with him, but not actually coach him and be his friend. That's what Nick needs. And it's, he's getting closer to that point clearly, but yeah, I think, I think what you said is just the nail on the head. I like, I can't with the victimization from him. You've got all the talent in the world. Everybody would be jealous and want, would die to have your talent to play this game and it seems like you're squandering it constantly and you know he says like i feel lonely and whatever but like when you look at this netflix doc and you know you see the instagram things on his life like all the time this guy's got a great fam like he's got a great family his parents seem lovely right his manager he's got friends like i struggle to understand where the loneliness is coming from um Obviously, like mentally, that could be a very different story. But, you know, I think he does have a really, really great support system around him. And maybe that's new and that's why he's doing so well now. And it wasn't there previously. But, you know, I, I think I think Nick. I, I, I yeah, I, it's the victimization. I like for me, ironically, like the person who I feel the most bad for is the Nazi Kalkanakis who was probably really like neck and neck with Nick when they were juniors around that same age, 18, 19. And then Thanasi just had all of these injuries that just completely, you know, stifled, stunted, derailed his career to the point where he's now, you know, just kind of like a decent touring professional and that's it. You know, give Nick's non-injuriness, I guess, durability is the word uh and talent to thanasi kokonakis's mindset and all of a sudden you've got a grand slam champion player uh ironically but yeah i i i think it was i think it was an interesting episode on the whole like just to talk about the episode specifically now like i thought it was good i i don't really again uh 
like I, I'll talk about my big takeaway once we we wrap up episode two quickly here. But I I don't think I necessarily learned anything new about Nick. I knew most of this already. I think like this is the episode that most of the non diehard tennis fans will find the most interesting personally i think this in the last episode but it was cool i mean it's it, it was interesting to get like the behind the scenes looks uh before and after matches i think was was really what i found uh to be the most helpful about this yeah and what for me was actually part of, i mean the coolest part of the episode in my opinion is his doubles run to the australian open title with kokonakas i mean that was actually really really neat how they kind of set that up and talked about the whole thing and about how they were like they were like yeah you want to play doubles sure okay oh we're in the f- wait wait a second we can actually win this thing like what you know what i mean and it kind of like became a dream come true for them which was which was pretty cool to see so i got to give him props for that and the fact that nick he did have a disappointing singles, but he was just all in on doubles, all in on Australia. You know what I mean? He, uh, he, he didn't like, you know, give up. He wasn't, you know, too pissy about him losing singles. Obviously he could have played better against Medvedev. Um, but, but I thought that was my takeaway was that that was like a really, really cool part that like normally you never get to see, especially because doubles is not a popular thing whatsoever, even though it should be. And it's great. It is so good for the game when top singles players play doubles and make stories like this. It's so, so good for the game. Yeah. Ironically, in the last episode, we had Phillips say like he shouldn't be playing doubles. And I think you and I actually both are on the flip side of that saying, no, he should definitely be playing doubles. It's really good that he is because that's a side of the game that does not get the love and support that it deserves. And I think that a lot of casual fans who criticize like the pace of singles tennis would really, really like the sort of fast nature, quick points, snap reflexes that doubles players have. I think it's an entirely different skill set that that would be appreciated for a more casual audience, to be honest with you. But and and the fact that singles players and and they covered this in the documentary too that singles players especially him and Kokonakis they play doubles so differently than do. your average double, doubles touring pros who do it because it's very coordinated it's honestly sometimes kind of boring because it's so well coordinated where these guys are just kind of like let's free for all screw it let's just use our talent to the max and I think that that's something that doubles is missing yeah I mean I think that most doubles players are using like a chess strategy. Right. They have specific moves lined up that they know will elicit specific responses from their opponents and they have closing moves for it. Like it's it's set up. It's a play. Right. It's drawn up. Uh, whereas Kokonakis and Kyrgios are just like, no, I'm just going to hit the tennis ball and then that's it. You know, so it's it's fun. It's different. I, I think it's very good that, you know, they play like that. And, and I hope that it encourages more of these singles guys to play. But. Moving on to episode two, which, you know, to be honest, I think you and I both felt like it was a little bit of a snooze fest, was about Matteo Berrettini and his now former girlfriend, Aya Tamjanovic. Um, Not awkward at all. Yeah, I don't really know. <sighs> Whatever. Um, uh, but, yeah, so I think the selection of Matteo Berrettini at the time, which was last year, made a lot of sense. He was coming off a great season. Matteo had made the finals of Wimbledon um, <clears throat> in 2021. So obviously I think this selection made a lot of sense. Matteo could definitely be a player who uh, would, would challenge at a lot of these majors and did uh, pre-injury, pre-COVID. Uh, you know, he was having a 
you know, a pretty decent season, had a really nice run in Australia, including that uh, third round match with Carlos Alcaraz, which they did cover, which I was really, really happy to see because I I also kind of forgot, like that was one of the best matches of the season last year uh, was that epic. So, you know, it, it was it was cool. And I think what it really highlighted to me this episode more on the Berrettini side is that like Berrettini's generation um which is just like a little bit older than like your Yannick Sinners and your Carlos Alcaraz and Hogarun like a little bit older than that one those guys are still terrified of the big three that's what it was sort of saying to me right like Matteo had that line in the doc where he says you know if it wasn't for Novak I probably would have had a slam by now you know it's just and like ironically this episode's called take the crown right and it's like okay yeah novak isn't playing in australia so like this is the chance for somebody new to get it and it's like oh nope rafael nadal's gonna win it like (laughs) it just kind of you know reinforces that fear even more ironically and that was something that i didn't think about at the time but watching this episode did make me sort of say like oh yeah like that definitely would have just doubled down that psyche in all these guys heads yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty much. I mean, the way that they even the way that the best part for me, whether out the whole, you know, five episodes, but especially that one was the way that they and more so once we get down the line, talk about the FAA and another own is that the way that they portrayed Nadal as like this, like absolute, like savage killer villain, like, you know, the dark side of the force, like, you know, jumping up and down in the hallway, swinging his racket, like I'm here to take all you guys out, like who's going to be. Who's going to be the Luke Skywalker to, you know, bring light to the, you know, bring balance to the force? And it's like, no, you know, it's just, it's tough to talk. It it was a good insight into, I guess, the psyche of a player and the psyche of like an average normal kind of tennis player, not like a Nick Kyrgios, who's a little bit more on the, on the crazy side and to kind of see like, what's the life like on tour. But at the same time, if they're trying to use this platform to kind of sell tennis as like an exciting, sexy sport, kind of like they did with F1, they dropped the ball on this episode because the whole, even even the, the part where they talk about, you know, Tom Jelanovic and her thing, it's like, she's kind of a, she's, she's a good player and whatnot, but it's just not really interesting. You know what I mean? And I mean, you know, I'll, 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 I'll say it. She doesn't deserve to have a part in this. She's not good enough. no. She's not, she's she's not not nearly good enough. Like there's, there's plenty of WTA players, whether it's Danielle Collins, Jessica Pagula, like that are more deserving of the airtime that Aya Tamjanovic got. It it felt like Tamjanovic was forced into this because they wanted Berrettini. That's to be honest, from my perspective, what it kind of felt like. Um, and it felt very forced. Yeah. I, I just was not really interested in, in her story and like, She's a middle of the road, like, you know, a good, a good player, but like, she's just not at that level not for that episode. Where, where she like warrants for the, it. For like the US Open one down the line where it's like the dramatic match against Serena, like, okay, like I want footage of that from the yeah, other perspective that, that's, because that's like, that's cool. You know, that's that's something that you, right. But it felt like, you know, I, I guess because she's Australian too, you know what I mean? Maybe that had something to do with it, but like also her and Mateo, I, they also didn't it was kind of weird how they also portrayed their relationships like they clearly weren't really even synchronizing 
that type of thing. I'm not yeah, here to comment on anybody's yeah, relationship, yeah, yeah. but like, no. So there, there was an article about that. Uh, I forgot where I read it, but it was talking about like that, like shortly after, like the the the, the Netflix doc did actually catch them breaking up. Like that was part of the yeah i know crazy but like they did actually catch that and like they asked that it be edited out and like whatever so there's a whole thing and yeah so like this episode was clearly just a complete disaster that they were just trying to pick up the pieces and you know put something on the screen that was viable for everyone to be honest and like in that respect i think you know well done <laughs> for for hiding the cracks and making the best of it but yeah, it just kind of like, I don't know if the show is meant to be more of like a reality look at the tour, then I do kind of want to see that breakup stuff, right? Like that is kind of what this is all about. Like you're letting cameras in on your life. And if it's not about that and it's more about the tennis side of things, then I'm not getting enough tennis stuff. So you know like, who I would have rather seen? Go for it. I would have rather seen Daniil. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen Daniil. Um the whole Australian Open, him making the final and then him losing to Rafa in that epic five-set match. And we know Daniil's always got something kooky going on. So, like, that would have been so much more interesting. Daniil actually would be a perfect player to put on this, to be honest, because he's, like, so erratic and whatever. But, yeah, I mean, just a quick note about all of this, you know, now that we've sort of wrapped up, you know, episode two, I guess, is, like, the <laughs> thing about Drive to Survive, the first season or two, is that none of the top guys were in on the show, right? Like Max Verstappen, Sebastian Vettel, and Lewis Hamilton were not really a big part of Drive to Survive for the first even two, three seasons, right? It wasn't until like the last season, uh, like season four and season five, that they became part of the show once it was very clear to everyone that like oh this is literally making an entire country become formula one fans and know who i am like i gotta be a part of this now you know and i think that that is what the case is for breakpoint um i don't think they were able to get really any of the top guys outside of casper rude clearly um to be a big part of this show uh, I know that I was reading Rafa Nadal specifically requested to not be part of the show because he did not want cameras to catch him effectively juicing uh, before those finals. Uh, not juicing with steroids, but like shooting his freaking foot up with, you know, whatever he was doing. Injections. Yeah. yeah. So I I think it's. It, it like the the frame of mind that you myself you know anybody who's like an actual tour following fan needs to sort of realize in the back of their head is that this is not made for us this is made for someone who has no knowledge of tennis and like this is supposed to be their introduction to the sport and i think in that respect it does succeed because i think a casual fan would find a lot of this stuff to be like pretty interesting and they would find some of these people to be interesting and I think in terms of trying to capture both uh, diehard fans and casual fans, the show fails. Ultimately, like these two episodes specifically fail uh, because they just did not give me enough. And I personally felt like it was disingenuous also. Like for me, as Marcus just mentioned, 
how do you tell the story of the Australian Open without showing me the Rafa, without showing me the Rafa Daniel match? How do you not show me Daniel's run to the final? Like, how how is none of this shown? You know, how do you not show me Rafa Nadal getting to the final and all the five setters that he had to? It's just, I understand you don't have the background coverage, but like you're showing me the tournament now for two episodes. Why don't you give me a little bit more? Because the men's doubles final, as great as that is, is not the main highlight here. And then on the women's side, you're talking to me about Aya Tamjanovic. There's no mention of Ash Barty retiring, which is a joke. Okay. Like that is just a comical like thing to omit. And then two, you're talking to me about, again, Aya Tamjanovic. And there's a girl named Iga Sviantek who is having the longest win streak in the like modern era, basically, who you have just no mention of, even though in the preview for part two in June, it shows that like you do have footage of her. So like at the U.S. Open. So it's like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, I, I, it just it just felt really, really, really dense to me. And it felt like a lot of missed opportunities from players who like do deserve the airtime and, and, and could have been a good part of this. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, you know, even, even, I don't, I don't even know if the show even really succeeded that much in even bringing non tennis fans to the sport because there's no, there's no real drama. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no spice to it yet. At least, you know, obviously I think, I think season two episode five does. True. The Felix episode. True. The Felix episode the Felix certainly would, does. Which we're going to get into uh, on our next episode. But I, I think that season two is going to be a little bit more spicy because we've got like Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And these are like more highlighter, you know, kind of like sexier tournaments and more things going on. But for the most part, I mean, if you're trying to sell tennis as this sport that, you know, you can get into and that you can follow and, you know, it's kind of exciting and it, not really like I don't want to see. Mateo and Ajla eating, you know, food in their, you know, it looks like a laundry machine blew up in there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like how messy was that room? And they're just eating food. I'm like, I think, okay. Like, I think that was part of the motif they were trying to sort of convey. Like it's messy? Like, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's it's not great, but. Yeah. I, I, I mean, listen. It, I agree. It, no, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree. I think that it needed, what it needed was at the, the beginning of part of episode one with the Maverick there needed to be a 10 to 15 minute primer on like, Hey, this is, you know, sure. They went into the scoring of how tennis works. We went to the bare bones understood what a grand slam is, but then I needed a 10 minute primer on the fact that like, Oh yeah, just so you know, these three guys have won like 60 majors in the past 15 years and no one has been able to beat them. That has never happened, nor will it ever happen again. So all of these guys are just desperately trying to like win anything against these guys and they can't do it. Like just any sort of like historical context to make people understand like what the environment of the ATP tour is like right now, you know, and they just didn't have that. So it doesn't have the drama, you know? Yeah. It I think that's that's basically how we should wrap it up is that the first two episodes certainly just don't I guess with the Nick there's a little bit more juice just because he's Nick and there's always a little bit of juice there but 
for the most part as a whole episode two was kind of a dud it was pretty uh there's just no juice unfortunately um even you know between the two and the relationship was kind of like oh you know whatever they're they're gonna break up and that's just kind of it you know so um i got nothing else to add frank unless you got something else to add to to whatever what we just talked about is pretty much it uh no i think we should we should consider consider a uh trademark suit is what we should do but uh yeah (laughs) copyright infringement (laughs) faux show yeah uh but that's gonna do it for us uh on this episode of breakpoint podcast uh, which is going to be part one of our uh, multi-part review of the Breakpoint documentary on Netflix. So if you guys want to get in contact with us, you can look us up at Breakpoint Podcast 7 on basically any social media that you're on, as well as LinkedIn, which Marcus is actively slinging it on. So that's great. You could also visit us at podpage.com slash break-point-podcast. And you can always uh, mainly DM us on Instagram and I'll be sure to uh, respond to your DM. And if you want to come on the show, you're more than welcome to come on the show. We're happy to uh, bring you on. And um, I think that's going to be, that's going to be it. Next episode is going to be actually, what are we going to do? Yeah. We're going to do next episode is going to be breakpoint pod uh, reviewing um, episodes three four and five of the breakpoint netflix documentary and then you'll also be hearing from us later this week with an australian open midweek review uh which we will not get into right now as to not spoil that but thanks for listening we appreciate your support as always and if again you want to be on the podcast let us know until then we'll see you guys next time see you guys